Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Thursday Morning Report. This was a project I did a few years back in partnership with Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, where I volunteered as an engineer, host, and producer. Enjoy this one-hour interview program that went out live over the radio on KZYX. If you like what you are hearing, you can check out my current podcast, The Shift with Doug McKenty, on your favorite podcast hosting site, or find out more on Facebook and YouTube at The Shift with Doug McKenty. I'm also on Twitter at McKenty. If you want to support the program, look up The Shift on Patreon, or find it on the web at www.theshiftnow.com and click on subscribe. Subscribers receive access to full-length feature episodes of The Shift, as well as the membership forum, where members can engage in discussions and participate in the evolution of the show. Stay tuned for this episode of the Thursday Morning Report from KZYX Radio in Mendocino County, California. Stay tuned in just a few moments. It's time for the Thursday Morning Report. I'll be your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This morning I'll be speaking with Mark Armstrong of the Institute for Public Banking. We're going to be talking about uh, the possibility of the creation of a California state bank. Uh, compare the banking systems of uh, the the Federal Reserve and the way that works, uh, the State Bank of North Carolina and how that, or excuse me, North Dakota and how that's been working for them, and uh, what might happen in California if we in this state decided to start our own California State Bank. Mark, are you there? Yes, I'm here, Doug. How are you doing this morning? Doing great. Very good. Yeah. You, you're uh, you're right down the road from us. It wasn't even a long distance call to call you this morning. Yeah, I know. Just on the southern end of the county, of Sonoma County. Yeah, very nice. All right. Well, will you just start us off by telling us about the Institute for Public Banking and uh, what you're doing down there these days? Uh, sure. I'll do a brief uh, overview of this. So the Public Banking Institute is fairly new. It's a nonprofit. It started less than a year ago. Uh, we've been uh, discussing it. A number of us have been discussing it for years. Uh, it came out of the work of Ellen Brown, who is the author of Web of Debt. And uh, that book was, was revealing it. It was published a few years ago uh, in that it basically disclosed how the Federal Reserve works. And so she's working on it, a new book called Public. Uh, it's actually going to be called um, The Buck Starts Here, and that's going to be coming out this winter. But, uh, you know, we, our focus is basically uh, comparing two alternative systems of uh, the, the monetary supply. One is, one is the private sector, which is what we're all familiar with, and that's where money is created within private banks. The other alternative has been around for, for thousands of years, and that is where money is create, created created out of public institutions, like a public bank. And so we're proponents of that alternative, uh, and uh, it's, it's something that runs in parallel with the private banking system. So Bank of North Dakota, in North Dakota, uh, is basically proven that it's a public institution serves the people of the state. It uh, creates essentially its own money supply and lends money into existence uh, through the private banking network. So you can't go to the Bank of North Dakota and get a loan. You go to your regular community bank, and there are loan programs that BNB, Bank of North Dakota, has set up, and then those loan programs uh, are actually fulfilled through the private banking network. So it's very complementary to, to what community or private banks already have. And uh, that's that's what we're uh, prop- uh, proposing here in California. All right, very interesting. Uh, let's talk for a moment about this Assembly Bill 750 that now has passed the legislature here in California and is on currently on the on Governor Brown's desk to be signed. Correct. 
Uh, that's correct. It passed both the Assembly as well as the Senate uh, just two weeks ago, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's now on Governor Brown's desk, and uh, it's it calls for the, it it's, it calls for just a a commission to study the merits of public banking if California were to have its own public bank. But um, you know the the important thing is to build consensus. It's gonna, it's going to take a while because there's so many different uh, uh, views of, of banking, and bank, public banking is new to so many people here in California that uh, it's going to take a while to build that consensus. So a study is actually a good idea. We, of course, would just, you know, we view it as banking. Banking is not rocket science. It's pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's very easy to uh, create a bank. You could buy, the state of California could actually buy a bank that's in Chapter 11 right now. So so um, it's it's very easy to get one going, but um, we're happy with the study. We'll take what we can get. All right. Uh, just so the audience kind of um, gets a grasp of, of what we're talking about here with the development of a central bank, I'd like to talk a little bit about where the money supply actually comes from. I think a lot of people are still under the impression that uh, we all take our money, we put it in a savings account, and then the bank takes the money out of the savings account and it loans it uh, to people in the form of mortgages, etc., um, but that's not actually how it works. The debt is the in the creation of the debt is an expansion of the money supply. Correct. So they're constantly making more money, and then when you pay your debts back, then the money supply shrinks. And there, this is kind of what uh, central bankers are thinking about in terms of how they control the money supply. Can you just go over the the whole process of of how money is created and what the significance of the of the money supply is, and and then uh, we can uh, talk about these different ways of controlling the money supply. Sure. So, so a couple things. Um, first of all, uh, money supply is completely man-made. It's not something that that exists in nature. Uh, although it is a system, an uh, information system, and so so there are essential rules associated with it. Um, but we're familiar with multiple different types of money supplies. If you look at just frequent flyer miles, that is a money supply. Hmm. You know, where you earn you earn those miles, and then you spend them for goods and services. And, and so we're all familiar with different types of money supplies. The, the one that we're most familiar with, of course, is the U.S. The, the US dollar money supply. And it's important to keep in mind what you just said, and that is as loans are made, the money supply increases, and as loans are paid off, the money supply decreases. And so the private banks basically make 90% of the, of the, uh, loans, that are, of the uh, loans that are out there. And so... The money supply basically is closely tied to private bank lending. So if they stop lending, which is what we've seen over the last three years, the money supply shrinks. And, and then we all suffer the consequences of that. There's not enough money to hire people. There's not enough money to expand businesses or to pay for, uh, to pay taxes. And so we, our tax revenue in the state of California has fallen off a cliff. And so if you don't control your own money supply, you know, you're, you, you really lose your, the, the whole concept of being a sovereign state goes out the window. And a public bank basically returns a state, in this case California, to, it gives them the ability to, to basically create a portion of their own money supply and, and put them back on track so we don't fall off the cliff as, as deeply as we, as we have over the last few years in terms of tax revenue. All right, so let's let's kind of focus again still on the Federal Reserve and how, uh, for example, can you tell me why they're not lending right now? Why are they shrinking the money supply? Uh, they got a lot of money from 
you know, a few years back from the bailouts and such, and, and they have kind of chosen not to lend it to the people. Do you know why that is? Right. Well, there was a, uh, a op-ed in the New York Times on Monday, and it actually um, it was written by Joe Nocera, and he does an excellent job reviewing uh, the cause of, of this um, anemic recovery. And, uh, and, and basically, he, he goes into a study that was published by the Northern Trust earlier this month. And, and the, the cause is basically there's no incentive for a, a bank to, to lend at this point. You know, they've got, they've got reserves. Mm-hmm. They're, being paid, they're being paid for those reserves by the Federal Reserve, and that's new. Um, there, there's no incentive for them to take, take uh, their, the credit that they have available to them and lend, lend it out, because they can take that credit and go buy bonds down in Brazil. You know, a lot of these banks these days are international banks, and they see much more opportunity in Brazil than they do in California. So the crazy thing about this whole thing is that you and I and others in California pay $60-plus billion in taxes every year. Out of that $60 billion, all of which is deposited in seven Wall Street banks, out of that $60 billion, another $60 billion of credit is created. And the banks take that credit, and instead of using it to invest in California, they use it to invest in Brazil or China or elsewhere. So, so we end up having our money being used against us, building up competition overseas. And, and that's, that's the crux of the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, we should be able to take our own tax revenues, put it in a public bank that's owned by the people, the people of the state of California, and use the credit that's generated by it and uh, package that in, in lending services or loans, which then private banks make, uh, make, make loans to the, the business community. So you don't end up with a situation where you have politicians making the loans. You, you have a situation where politicians create the lending programs and private banks tap into that as a pool of credit, which then they lend out to businesses so that people can be hired. You know, our calculation is that if we were to use the exact same model that, that uh, North Dakota has, we could hire anywhere between 140 or five and 500,000 people. It depends on how you do it. It's just an extrapolation per capita. But if we were to take their existing model, it's a few hundred thousand dollars of jobs that or 100,000 jobs that could be created here in California. Because they actually require, for every $100,000 that's lent, they require a, a person to be hired. So we're, you know, if we just copied their model, um, we've mm-hmm. got a few hundred thousand jobs right there. All right. I, I still want to talk about the Federal Reserve for just a few minutes because we've been talking about it as um, these private banks that own it. And sure. this, this is a question that comes up often when I talk to people about this. Is the Federal Reserve owned by the government or is it owned by these private corporations? Can you explain uh, how that sure. works? Uh, yeah, let, let's chat about that. So, so let's step way back and let's just talk about uh, a, a government being able to uh, be in control of its own money supply. You know, most, most governments around the world um, uh, have different approaches. They either control their own money supply and issue currency into the economy, into their own economy, or they rely upon a central bank. In our case, we rely upon a central bank. And it's called the Federal Reserve, but there's nothing federal about it in that it's owned completely by private bankers. 
and they actually produce the money. If you look at the currency you have in your pocket, it says Federal Reserve notes. Mm-hmm. And so, so the, the Federal Reserve, a private institution, uh, creates the currency that's available, as well as creates the electronic currency through the banking system, through the lending programs that I, that I or the lending ability that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And so, so the, the Federal Reserve is, is in a very powerful position to basically take the credit that the businesses and private, private individuals have. You know, we all have credit associated with our name or our reputation. They actually are in a position to take that credit and then earn interest off of our credit by, by lending money associated with it. And, and then if we default, you know, a business defaults on its loan, then, then they can, uh, the banks can, can actually take property that we had title to. So we've given this, them this very uh, important role in our society, uh, starting with the Federal Reserve, and, and we've, we've sort of given up a lot of rights along the way. So I, I, I know with um, more conservative folks in the Tea Party, actually there have been a couple of bills written in Montana as well as Arizona by more conservative folks, and they're public banking bills, and they're extremely strongly worded public banking bills because some people really get the idea that you know a state should not abdicate its sovereignty to the Federal Reserve or any, any other outside organization. It could be the BIS out of, out of uh, Switzerland. And, and so... Um, so, you know, public banking has everything to do with state sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things I wanted to bring up was that um, even though the United States government has the power to print the coin, they've given this power over to the Federal Reserve and these private banks. And so instead of just making the money and spending it, the government has to borrow the money from them and pay them back with interest. Uh, I mean, that's the, to me, it's like the whole the scheme is, is they're scamming off the top of every dollar spent by the government, basically, <laughs> um, by charging know, interest for gonna, the increase in the money. It's such a bad system. It is such a bad system in that we, we end up paying, uh, you know, the bulk of our, our federal uh, debt is, is interest payments. And the bulk of that is to the Federal Reserve, which is just sort of, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a crazy system. We've, we've basically given them the right to control our, monetary policy, and, uh, you know, that's something that the Treasury Department could do. As a matter of fact, back in the 30s and the 40s, there was an uh, organization called the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, RFC, and uh, headed by Jesse Jones. Have you heard of this, Doug, by any chance? No, I haven't, actually. Okay, so the RFC yeah, came about in the early 30s, and its purpose was to loan money to uh, businesses and to banks. Matter of fact, at, at um, one point, they owned a good forty percent of all banks in in the states in, in terms of equity. And what they did was basically lend money. This was off budget and nothing to do with Federal Reserve. And they this was simply an accounting mechanism. They do they lent money to uh, businesses to make sure that uh, you know things were uh, things people were hired, things were built. The Bay Bridge in, in San Francisco. There was, that was an $88 million loan that was, that was created from the, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. It was paid back in just a couple of years and because of the tolls that were, that were uh, taken. And so the RFC was in a role to basically, as part of the Department of the Treasury, to lend money, and any interest was basically viewed as profit and returned to the Department of Treasury. This was, had nothing to do with the Federal Reserve, 
and uh, it was very effective. It's one of the things that, that got us out of the Depression as well as uh, put us on war footing for World War II because they started investing in businesses that would, that would um, create uh, special uh, products or, or uh, had certain manufacturing techniques that the Defense Department needed. So, you know, you can use a, an organization that's not necessarily tied to the Fed to, to uh, uh, create money and to hire people. We've done it before, and you know, public banking is, is a way to do it again. All right. Well, the time is now 9.19. You're listening to the Thursday Morning Report right here on KZYX. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKenty. I'm speaking this morning with Mark Armstrong from the Institute for Public Banking. We're talking about uh, public banking in general and uh, state banks uh, in specific, uh, this uh, assembly bill. 750 that is uh, on the desk of Governor Brown right now uh, contemplating looking into uh, the creation of a California state bank. So that's our topic for this morning. Uh, One thing that interests me then, uh, as I was doing research for this show, was that as the government increases the money supply, they increase it through debt. It's just uh, the funny thing is that you know, we're having this debate in Congress right now so much about, oh, we need to pay off the debt, we need to pay off the debt, but that that debt is actually the way government debt as well as personal debt. So our debt plus the government debt equals the money supply, basically. So the government can't really pay off that. If the government did pay off all that debt, they would shrink the money supply so much that we would have a Great Depression. Isn't that right? So it's they're only just paying, they only ever are thinking about paying the interest. They're never really going to pay off that principle. So, okay, so, so yeah, there are different ways to get money into, into an economy. We've chosen, in our, in our country, we've chosen to get it into the economy by issuing debt. You know, somebody takes out a loan, the money supply is increased, and then they pay back the loan, and the money supply decreases. That's the way we set it up in our economy. We've given um, private banks a, a, a role to issue those loans. Um, Another way to do it, I mean, there are lots of different ways to do it. If you look at um, business-to-business transactions, payment terms are issued from one business to another business. So basically, you know, I may buy something from you, you deliver it to me, and then you give me credit uh, and payment terms of 30 days, 60 days, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Well, that's another way to facilitate an economic transaction um, using credit that's issued by private parties. Right, so you've essentially expanded the money supply right there for 60 days or, or for the term of the contract. Exactly, and, mm-hmm. and the supplier is actually acting as a little bank by doing that. Another way to do it, as I, as I mentioned earlier about frequent flyer models, I mean, that's just a minuscule part, but um, it's a good example where basically people are issued this electronic representation called frequent flyer miles. They bank it, and then they spend it on seats. Or, you know, these days it's, you can spend it on a lot of different things. So there are a lot of different ways to create money and then to um, have it be used. Um, the, the, going back to the Bank of North Dakota, the, the reason why it's attractive, and um, as opposed to some of the other, uh, especially debt, a, a strictly debt-oriented uh, money supply, is the problem with a debt-oriented money supply is, is not the debt itself, but the interest. Right. So when you when you charge interest on debt and it's exorbitant, like a sixteen percent on a business credit card, which is considered to be a business loan, a small business loan by a lot of banks these days, that that sixteen percent needs to come from somewhere. 
and and money is not issued into the economy for for that purpose, and so you create this artificial scarcity, and which, which is what's driving a lot of people to you know end up with nothing. And, and yeah, yeah. I mean, this concept really blows me away. So you expand the money supply by giving the debt, but then you 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 know the person that you gave the debt to owes you the debt plus the interest, and that interest has to come from somewhere. And so it's going to right. come from somebody else that has also taken out a loan that you're basically now having to compete with, and one of you has to lose so that you can pay off the principal plus the interest because that's uh, yeah, all the it, money. It's completely a game of musical chairs, mm-hmm. and and we're all caught up in it. What uh, is attractive about the Bank of North Dakota is that they do charge interest. Now it's it's typically lower than what you find. I mean, a lot of interest uh, in their business loans is as low as one percent. For, for a few years. So, so you get these very affordable rates. But nevertheless, what happens is when you pay that interest, it's just a debt-based money, when you pay that interest, well, what happens then? The money, the money, the interest payments that you make is, is um, considered to be profit by the Bank of North Dakota, and it's returned to the budget in the state of North Dakota. And actually, it lowers, they've lowered their income and property taxes. The, yeah, I mean that's the, the amazing thing. The, yeah. Well, I'm just uh, you know thinking about again the the whole argument that's going on in Congress, which is kind of I just it, they don't even seem to be talking about the right thing. You know, well we're not going to cut taxes, we're going to cut the deficit, but they're not really talking about the money supply and and how uh, it can be controlled. Right, uh, and again the, the the issue is is the um, interest on the money, it's on the on the debt, mm-hmm. overall debt. And if we if we were to get away from having to pay the Federal Reserve interest, you know, the the debt would look much more manageable. Well, and that and that's the thing. So then, all of a sudden, in, as in the case of North Dakota, you can then lower taxes while also you know adding money to the coffers of the state budget. I mean, they're they're getting the best of both worlds, uh, exactly. you know, from whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. And it just seems like the paradigm of the conversation, uh, at least in Congress, is not at all. Uh, you know what they should be talking about, <laughs> right? I know it's it's definitely a conversation that seems a little foolish because it's it's not the problem. I mean, you have to define the problem, and the problem is uh, the interest on the debt, not mm-hmm. the debt itself, because the debt is the money supply. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about inflation and deflation then, uh, because this these are the the catchwords that you're always hearing. Well, when you're trying to control the money, I mean, I guess it's pretty difficult to control the money supply. Uh, and then, because if you add too much money into the system all at once, then it's just going to cause inflation, and the money is going to be worth less. Uh, and then, if you cut, I mean, maybe that's the reason why the the banks aren't lending to Americans right now is just because they're afraid that if they opened up the, you know, the floodgates on that, then uh, the value of the dollar, which it's already plummeting, but I guess it would plummet even further. Um, anyway, right. can you just kind of talk about this this cycle of inflation and deflation and how the current system deals with that, and maybe uh, c- uh, compare that with how a state bank would deal with that? Sure. So we got we need to keep in mind that uh, the inflation is there are really two parts to it. It's it's too much money chasing too few goods. Mm-hmm. So so we uh, we forget the second part of that, and so so if um we we think automatically think that if there's too much money out there. And that's not a good thing because there's going to cause inflation. But really, it's too much money chasing too few goods. Mm-hmm. If you put money into the economy and use that money to increase the production of goods and services, right? Then, 
then you, you end up with a zero-sum game, and, and you, you end up in a situation where you haven't caused inflation at all. So, uh, you, you know, the, the nice thing about the, the, the model for uh, Bank of North Dakota is that it's not politicians putting money into the economy. It's private bankers who, who decide upon the, the cash flow merits of a particular deal. So what's nice about that is that a, a private banker, a community banker, will look at the merits of the deal. Let's say they're going to put $500,000 into a company that's going to expand their, their, let's say, pasta manufacturing plant. So $500,000 goes into that production facility, and, and yet because it's a good deal, what's happening is more pasta is being increased, is, is being produced, and there's more revenue associated with it that's coming back to that plant as well as back to the state. And so it's actually fine. It doesn't, it doesn't impact the, the um, inflation at all. Right. I mean, I'm talking generalities here, but that case I just told you is a, is a true example where you know, the pasta manufacturing capability was, was like tripled with a new manufacturing plant. Um, but there's no... It's not going to be a discernible increase in the cost of pasta because of this of this plant um, being opened up. And what happens at the end of the day is the loan is paid off, so that the increase in the money supply is, doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. There have been some cases in history, I think, where the state it wasn't there a state bank of Alabama maybe a hundred years ago plus or something, and they and it did become inflationary. Have you heard about well, that? What, ha- what happened? So when you look at the history of banking, and I wish I knew more about it, but, mm-hmm. but basically um, before the Revolutionary War, there were a number of different uh, banks in the colonies. The most successful one was in Philadelphia, founded by Quakers, and actually they were very good about um, producing the amount of currency that was required to facilitate economic transactions. The issue that came about with the Boston Tea Party was when, the, uh, when King George levied a tax, and the tax needed to be payable in gold-based currency. So he would not accept the currency that the colonists were using. Mm-hmm. They had to pay in, in the king's friend's currency system. And so they, they revolted, of course, because they didn't want to pay this tax. It would, you know, they, would have, they would have gone bankrupt and lost everything. Right. So... Um, so that was the rep, uh, pre-revolutionary war. During during the 1800s, there were a number of state banks that were created. They actually each issued their own currency. So you ended up with um, a tremendous problem with regards to the um, uh, the validity of the currency and and whether or not there was any counterfeiting going on. And so it was right. really it was a standard issue. And so the so state banks were actually competing with the dollar. Yeah, and so what happened was there, uh, out of that came a lot of laws uh, in the state constitutions, so in Missouri and some of the other uh, states back, back in the south as well as on the east coast, prohibiting a, state bank, uh, prohibiting a state from creating its own state bank. So there are a number of state constitutions out there that prohibit a state from owning its own state bank. But that's not true with most western states. This all happened before the Civil War. What happened with the Civil War is is um, Abraham Lincoln went to the bankers in New York City to borrow money. They were charging an exorbitant amount of, of um, interest, 25-26%, for the money he needed in order to fund the war. And so he said, well, you know what, let's just 
do something else. I mean, he printed greenbacks from the Department of Treasury right. and used that, used that to fund the war. And th- so that's 0% uh, interest because you're basically, as a federal government, creating its own money supply and, and using that to, uh, pay, uh, to pay for services or, or whatever, whatever it's paying for. And that's how the money gets spent into, into the economy. And so, um, so that, of course, became the standard for, for a number of years and until 1913 when the Federal Reserve was set up. And then these Federal Reserve notes became, became the standard as a result of that. So, Yeah, I think one of the interesting tidbits uh, from history is that the, of the three presidents that have been assassinated, all three of them have one thing in common, which is that they've tried to circumvent the, the private banking system and by having the government print uh, its own money. So right. anyway, I mean, Kennedy did it as well with the $2 bills. He was doing the same thing, trying to, trying to bypass the private system. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot at stake. But, but you know, the public banking, um, the public bank of North Dakota, that started in 1919. It's been sitting side by side in, uh, with the private banking system for, for decades now. Right. And it's actually a very nice complementary system because it actually the, the Bank of North Dakota acts as kind of a mini Fed within its own state because mm-hmm. it's so large it can create very large credit pools which are then lent out. Well let's talk about a few excuse me a few of the other options. Uh, a lot of people that look into this and decide that they don't like the, the Federal Reserve system uh, then go on to advocate uh, something like a gold standard. Uh, what is the what is your position about the gold standard and 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 uh, maybe a little bit of a historical perspective on that as well? Um, sure. So, so the um, so so the my our position is basically along the lines of you know there are different ways to different metrics that you can use to set up a currency system. Mm-hmm. We've discussed a couple of different ones. Okay. And so, it, it, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter which which one which metric you're using. However, what is important is what's what's the guarantee behind it. What what backstop serves as the backstop for it? And you know, when you have when you set up, let's say we're set up a currency system for California, and we just we said it's going to be fiat currency for California, and it was the it's the full faith and credit of the people of California who are backing it. Now that means there's no gold behind it. It's just it's just accepted as the currency. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so that's kind of like what we have right now with the U.S. dollar. The um, the the problem with with setting up gold or any other precious metal up as the backstop for currency is that the, where are you going to get it? I mean, the people who own the gold are the people who basically own the Federal Reserve right now. Right. <laughs> you're still gonna, you're still going to be beholding to to uh, people or, or competing interests who who ha- you've given them control, mm-hmm. and and there's no, I mean the purpose of money, you know most of the money that we have we spend, so the purpose is not to hoard it but to spend it, and it just facilitates an economic transaction. What happens is is too many people think that there's value in inherently in money, and yes, if you're going to save it. And it's and and be able to invest it, and it's interest bearing. Yes, of course, there's value in it. But for most of us, ninety plus percent of what we what we earn, the money we earn, we turn around and we spend it. So we, you know, we could be using wood chips 
as, as currency. It right. doesn't really matter because, <laughs> because we're just going to be getting rid of them. It's just meant to be a metric for associating value and to have this standard in place so you can have some way to facilitate economic transactions. So the mistake I think a lot of the folks who are really into gold make is, is they think that money is something that's to be hoarded and uh, to be saved. And, you know, for, for most of us, money, whether it's frequent fly miles or, you know, U.S. dollars, is you, you, you hold on to it for a short time in order to then spend it for something that's of approximate value. Right. Well, I think in reading some of the history, for example, you brought up the Revolutionary War where there just wasn't enough precious metals to facilitate the economy here. So then they, they had to start printing up paper money, uh, and it seemed to work out for them. It, As, it did not work out for them? No, it seemed to work out for them. Oh, yes, it did. It did. It did work out for them uh, beautifully. And, and um, you know, when, when you, you really have to examine what wealth is, and we're going to be issuing a newsletter later on this month uh, that's going to be discussing what wealth is. And wealth is not money, per se. It's, it's really you know, being in a position to have uh, something that will allow you to facilitate your economic transactions and to be able to acquire goods and services that you need. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it real, that's when you're wealthy, you know, in a, in a sense. You've, you've got this easy access to this, unit of, to, to this um, money, which you can then spend to improve your your lot here on Earth. So. Right. All right, very good. Uh, I wanted to get a little bit into uh, this whole debate from a historical perspective because really probably for the first uh, 100, 100 years or so, 150 years of, of this country uh, becoming a nation, this was the biggest debate. I mean, this is what everybody talked about. And it's interesting now that so few of us even understand how the Federal Reserve works, much less realize that 100 years ago, everybody was talking about this stuff because they were all concerned about the value of their cash. Uh, so can you just kind of talk a little bit about a brief overview of, of the history of the debate here and just how important it was uh, in politics, you know, uh, before the creation of the Federal Reserve? Uh, sure. The, the, I'll focus in on between 1860s and, and 1913. What, what happened uh, with the advent of gold rushes, a lot of that gold uh, was shipped back east, and so it, it was under control of eastern bankers or, or um, powerful interests. And so, so that, the dollar became closely associated with, um, with the gold standard. Meanwhile, silver mines were, were being uh, discovered here in California and, and the rest of the West, and particularly Montana. And... There was a huge movement in the 1880s and 1890s to create a silver standard. Mm-hmm. As, silver was more in the hands of the people at the time, whereas gold had been taken over by, as you say, the Eastern bankers. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, as a matter of fact, um, William Jennings Bryan in 1896, his Cross of Gold speech, and if anybody wants to uh, look it up, just search on Cross of Gold 1896. He did this amazing uh, speech about about how you know he's saying you know a lot of people say government should not be in the business of banking, but I say banking should be out of the interest should get out of governing, uh, and mm-hmm. and if he was emphatic about it, and um, he recognized that a monetary system um, is basically a way to control uh, the economy and control control people's livelihoods, and he wanted banks out of it. Um, and he wanted a, a silver standard uh, to be put in place. He, he wasn't successful, 
but uh, as a result of this, um, you know, the famous book Wizard of Oz uh, was written. Uh, Dorothy's slippers were originally silver slippers, and and the uh, yellow brick road was the gold road was was made of gold. And that entire story is an allegory for the monetary movement back in the at the turn of the century, nineteen hundred or so. So if yeah. if you look at um, Ellen Brown's book called Web of Debt, um, she makes the connection with each chapter uh, between between some of the um, things we we've heard about and and or in this mo- in the movie or in the book in the monetary system. As a matter of fact, in the movie, um, the the wicked witch of the east, I think it was, um, who gets melted by water. Oz, the the Wizard of Oz, says, "You killed her with liquidity." Right, <laughs> and and that's the whole point. When you 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 when you have liquidity in economy, you're no longer beholden to the to the bankers. Right, you, and there's then, plenty of cash. There's plenty of money to facilitate economic transactions, and you don't get into that musical chair situation where chairs are taken away and how people lose their assets. Right, that's that's interesting, and the and the wicked witch of the east was uh, a symbol for the eastern banking establishment. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah, it, east. It, it I have been uh, reading Web of Debt lately, and uh, I've just been blown away at the depth of the allegory in that story, where she really goes into it, and you just realize, um, you know, every character is talking about the economy and how it works, and you know what we need to do uh, to get money back in the hands of the people. That's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, the time is now 9.40. You're listening to the Thursday Morning Report here on KZYX. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKenty. I'm speaking this morning with Mark Armstrong of the Institute for Public Banking. About 20 minutes left in the program, so I'd like to really start to hone in on this idea of a state bank and how it would work. Uh, There is Assembly Bill 750 on Governor Brown's desk right now uh, talking about doing some research uh, looking into uh, California uh, creating a state bank. Uh, so that's uh, one of the purposes of the show today is to educate you all about that. So why don't we talk about then uh, the the Bank of North Dakota and how it came about? Because it seems to me, so we're, we're talking about 1913, they, they create the Federal Reserve, and, and basically the, the central bankers have won with this move. Um, and the Eastern Banking Establishment is now lending money to the government at uh, interest. And... Um, so it seems to me like, but there are still vestiges of, of this movement that had been going on before that, as you mentioned, William Jennings Bryant, and it seems like in North Dakota, those maybe took root and uh, cre- they created a state bank there. So anyway, will you uh, discuss with us a little bit the history and how that came about? Sure. Uh, the reason why it came about is, is the farmers were, were locked in this, in this no sun gain type situation. Uh, they, the, the railroads, um, business, the railroads owned about 30-40% of the land and uh, the, the railroads also owned the mills. So there was a time in the mid-teens uh, when the railroads just stopped buying very much grain from, from the farmers. It was good grain, but the railroads didn't, didn't want to buy it anymore for whatever reason. And so what happened was, was the farmers uh, uh, fell behind on their mortgage payments mm-hmm. for their farm and they, they owed this money to uh, banks out of state. And then the banks foreclosed on them. And then guess who bought their land? It was the railroad. Right. <laughs> so, they, so they scratched their heads and said, you know what? This, well, is, this uh, is silly. Right. Is, we've got to get out of this crazy system because 
at the end of the day, we're all going to become paupers. Well, and you know, these well entrenched interests are going to be owning everything. And, and to put it in, we'll just let going on now. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. If over the last hundred years, we have seen that some ninety percent of family farms have all gone out of business. I mean, this is this is systemic. Uh, right. And so the farmers in, in North Dakota realized that this was going on and uh, decided to do something about it. Exactly. So, so they uh, formed a nonpartisan league, and they ran different candidates, uh, some Republican, some Democrat, but the end result was the state legislature was full of these nonpartisan league people and who, who then uh, who decided, you know what, we need to have a state-owned bank. We also need to have a state-owned mill. And so those two organizations are still in existence today. Wow, they have a state-owned mill, huh? Exactly. That's interesting. Yeah, and and so the the um, the bank actually a- acted as a bank to some extent, but it really did not develop its lending capacity the way we see now until the mid '80s. In the mid '80s, North Dakota had the highest foreclosure rate of of all states. And so what happened was they realized that they should really use the bank to, to better serve the people. The, the assets, when you look at a bank's assets, it can be investments or it can be loans. And so their, their loans, loan-to-asset ratio was down, by, down to around 15%. So only 15% of their assets were loans. Remember what we were talking about earlier, it's loans that inject liquidity into the economy. Mm-hmm. So they... they went on this tear, and in the last 20-plus years, they've, they've been able to increase their loan-to-asset ratio to more like 75 or 80 percent, and as well as building up their entire asset base. So it's now around four, about $3.5, $4 billion. So, so they end up with this very large lending base, and, and that's injecting liquidity into, the, into their economy, and now they have the lowest foreclosure. You know, so it's, they've really addressed that. Well, I mean, this close, is interesting. Close rate. One, one of the things that really caught my attention uh, as I was looking into doing this show was that basically the, this great recession has happened, and it hasn't affected North Dakota at all. I mean, they just rode the wave, and, and you know, it's, it's practically miraculous when you look at the rest of the country. Right. Um, so, yeah, they've, they've got the lowest foreclosure rate, lowest unemployment rate, uh, budget surplus, years running, and a number of other successful metrics. Now, one of the reasons why they're successful is high commodity prices. But, but you know, California is a is a higher producing agricultural state than they are. Right. And and the other thing is that they have oil and gas. So, so you would think that well, oil and gas is on a tear. So, so they that's why they're benefiting. But you know, Montana has has produces more oil and gas than than North Dakota. And yet, its unemployment rate is more than twice as much, more like 7.8%, and, and North Dakota is like 3.4%. So, so they, um, uh, North Dakota has been able to take these resources and develop them. Oil doesn't pump itself out of, the, out of the ground. It takes loans made to businesses who then hire the people and buy the materials and, and equipment needed to, to pump oil out of the ground. And that's what North Dakota is doing through their bank. So that's the big difference. North Dakota is lending money into their economy, and it's just it's just working on all on all cylinders right now. Right. So let's let's talk about state banks in general, 
and and how they function. You mentioned earlier in the show that most of the time a state will take its tax base, basically, it's this immense sum of money that it receives from the public every year, and uh, in the current system, most of the states then invest that money with uh, with the big bankers. And it ends up going, you mentioned it ends up going all over the world then, and they invest it elsewhere. In a state bank, the government will take that money, put it in the state bank, and then have it work for the people of that state. Uh, so can you just kind of describe you know, that and some of the other benefits that you're going to see uh, from having a state bank, if there are benefits? Right. So, so yeah, the way that a public bank would work is, is very simple. It's, conceptually, it's exactly like a private bank. Only 100% of the equity is owned by the state of California in our case. So otherwise, it works just like a, a regular bank. But, but the model we use is a wholesale bank where uh, they, you, know, you can't walk into Bank of North Dakota and give them money for a deposit. It's not a retail bank. It's, right. it's set up to be a, a wholesale bank. So it's one building, 160 employees, and they work. their customers are private banks. And we would do the same thing here where you know, we, we would have a, a, a public bank it would probably be a building in, in uh, Sacramento, and it would be basically um, create, the purpose would be to create lending pools of credit pools, which are derived from those you know fifty sixty billion dollars of deposits that we make every year in our tax receipts. Mm-hmm. So, so those credit pools can be lent out, and it's it would be the community banks who would lend it. Now, the cool thing is, the very interesting thing is, is that. You know, you package this credit in terms of lending programs. So there, there could be, if you look at Bank of North Dakota's website, they've got, a, you know, a couple of dozen different types of lending programs, all specific for different sectors of their economy. And, and those lending programs are set up in negotiation between the private bankers who say, hey, you know, we've got a lot of people walking in here who need a, a loan for a particular type of um, irrigation equipment We've never loaned this before, but we think there should be a there should be a lending program associated with it. Right. So it's high tech. It ends up being a high tech agricultural loan, um, and the, and the the program itself is specific for that particular sector of the economy. And as you also have politicians who who say, you know what, we really do need to develop our high tech industry in this part of the state, and need to start um, getting in some some businesses and investing in businesses. Who, who want to develop this for the state. And so, so these lending programs are, are done through negotiation through a number of different people. It's public, it's transparent, and it serves the needs of the people. And, uh, and it's always changing, too. And, but it's not the politicians who decide then who gets the money. You know, a, a business person would need to go to a community bank and make an application mm-hmm. for a loan. So it's it works out really well from, from that perspective. The bank is just there to provide liquidity for the local bankers. So, exactly. so they always have enough cash to be able to, to be uh, giving loans out to people in need. And specifically, the Bank of North Dakota participates in the loans that the local bankers generate or originate. Where do the local bankers in the current system, in the Federal Reserve System, where do they get their money supply? Like, I guess now it's, it's kind of dried up. That's why they're not lending. I know that that has been a problem. Uh, historically, what they do is when they get a big loan, let's say they're going to loan five hundred thousand dollars for a new for a business, mm-hmm. 
they have to go to other community banks and they'll have five, six, seven different other banks participating in that loan. And it's a real hassle for a small community bank to have to deal with managing that process. Well, eventually, too, they're going to have to go to one of the Federal Reserve banks that that have that are making the money supply. Is that right? Or are yeah, they... exactly. That's where the whole overnight borrowing comes into play. Mm-hmm. And yes, they they actually uh, need to do that. And and just to be clear, you know, Bank of North Dakota is still part of the Federal Reserve system. It has an account with the Minneapolis Fed. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, it's it's not a it's not a independent standalone bank. It's got to be part of this this network. Right. So, you know, it, it, it uses Federal Reserve notes. Yes, exactly. Do they own stock in the Federal Reserve Bank? Do you know? No, they don't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just wondering. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, that's, that is the way, that's the way it works on, on the ground, and it actually works very well for, uh, for people who need uh, money in order to expand their business. And, you know, that's what we need here in California is to have the ability for, for people to be able to uh, borrow money at, at affordable rates, you know, not the 16% credit card craziness, and and use that money to expand their businesses or to uh, hire people. All right, well, we just have a few minutes left in the show. Can we talk specifically about uh, this uh, Assembly Bill 750 then and, and exactly uh, what it is designed to do for the state of California? And, right. So, just do you know? Yeah, I mean, and what are some of the ideas about uh, about creating a state bank here? The ideas. What do you mean? The ideas. Sorry. Well, I, I just mean, it, does AB seven fifty is it outlining a specific kind of bank that we that we would end up uh, creating here in California, or is it just really open ended, where it's just looking into yeah. any, any kind of options, any other options? Fair, fair enough. Uh, so AB seven fifty does outline the parameters, uh, the general look and feel of what this bank would look like, and it looks very similar to the Bank of North Dakota as a wholesale bank, no retail, no providing individual services um, like ATMs or anything like that, credit cards, nothing like that. It's just creating a loan a, a loan pool, uh, which is then lent out through private through private banks. Now that, as a point of contrast with what they have in New Zealand. They have a public bank there, and it's called uh, Kiwi Bank, and it's in all their post offices. Hmm. So, so they, you can you can go up and you know mail a letter as as well as make deposit a check into your bank, and, and it's a people's. It's owned by the people. It's it's a retail public bank, and they provide all sorts of retail services, including individual loans. So, uh, you know that's. That's a point of contrast. That, that's not something that's being considered here in California. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who, who feel that, you know, I, I'd much rather put my money into a state-owned bank than a uh, private-owned bank, but um, we're, we're not there yet. So, so if we're looking at a wholesale bank. The, the bill, as you mentioned, is on Governor Brown's desk. Um, he does need to be contacted and encouraged to, to sign it uh, because... Uh, we, you know, there's there's a lot of people who who um, are kind of been brainwashed by the existing uh, bank private banking system, and they feel that that government should not be in the banking system. Uh, and so, this is not putting the government in the position of making loans. We want to be absolutely clear about that. It's simply using an asset which we've been giving away to Wall Street bankers for their own private gain and taking it back. We're leaving. 50, 60 billion dollars of money on the table. 
and this take, brings it back to California. So as opposed to underwriting uh, and trusting Wall Street bankers who, who really have violated our trust over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Well, it actually looks like the stock market is crashing just now. <laughs> so, uh, Another good reason to put our money in our own bank. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, all right, we've got just a few minutes left in the program. Is there anything that you would like to conclude with? Maybe we could talk about uh, the next step. Uh, uh, I guess what would happen is should the governor sign this, this bill, then what, uh, what would they do after that? Uh, and then uh, what might be the next step in the creation of a state bank? Yeah, if he does sign this, uh, then what we do is we very quickly uh, form a uh, this commission over the next few months and and uh, begin uh, begin to hold some meetings. There'll be public forums, I'm sure, where, where people can uh, testify for or against. And uh, it, it'll be a good opportunity for a public debate on the merits of a um, state-owned bank. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, it should be a really interesting process. Uh, it has to begin by February 1st and has to conclude no later than December of 2012. So we're talking a long time from now, but it will be a, 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 pro- a very uh, helpful process uh, for the public debate. It's an, it's an important issue. Uh, right now we're, we're leaving all this money on the table for private bankers to use for their own private gain and invest overseas in Brazil or wherever. And, you know, other countries are clearly not following this model. If you look at China, they just announced four months ago that they're building 45 airports in the next five years. And the reason why they can do that is because they have control of their own money supply. It's something that we really need to look at and figure out how we can take the reins back from, from the private bankers and at least have some ability to create credit for our people in the state. Yeah, I mean, just going back to the the idea of doing a public debate, um, it has, as we discussed earlier, it's been for a hundred years in the history of this nation, it always has been a public debate, but for the last hundred years, uh, it really hasn't been. And in fact, uh, the the way that the money supply is created has been kind of kept secret and not really discussed. Uh, so I think something really positive could come out of, of just having it in the, in, the, in the arena and creating the debate out of it. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. That's why it was so encouraging to see this uh, op-ed in the New York Times on Monday, uh, and, and it was discussing about the need for more credit in our system. Now, it did not talk about public banks. Hopefully one of these days, the New York Times or another publication will, will write an article about <laughs> it, but we'll, we'll get there. All right. Well, we're looking at about 9.57. Do you want to make some concluding remarks and maybe give out the website, talk a little bit more about the Institute for the Public Banking Institute? Uh, sure. Yeah. So, so it's really important right now. If you don't, if you don't do anything else, please uh, just Google Governor Brown, contact him, and um, send him an email in support of AB 750. There's a contact form on his website. I don't know his website, but you can easily find it. Uh, and if you want to know more information about public banking in general, go to our website, which is publicbankinginstitute.org. All right, very good. Thank you very much for being on the show, Mark. It was a pleasure talking to you. I think you brought some light onto a subject that's often very confusing for people. So, Thank uh, you, Doug. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. All right, bye-bye. All right, have a good day. 
All right, and there you go, ladies and gentlemen. The time is 9.58. You've been listening to the Thursday Morning Report right here on KZYX 90.7 FM Philo, KZYZ 91.5 FM Willits, and Ukiah, that's 88.1 FM Fort Bragg. This is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. We're streaming on the web at kzyx.org.